Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. So a few people came in during the meditation. So just once again, I'm, I'm Michael. You know, you know who I am. Uh, I usually teach on Sunday nights, but this month I'm teaching on Friday nights as well. Uh, and I'm doing this little series on the dhyanas, or jhanas, as they're sometimes called. Um, just out of curiosity, who uh, raise a hand if you have never heard of a dhyana or a jhana before as a meditative state? Sweet. Everybody's familiar with these. So I mentioned when I started, the Pali word is jhana with a J, Sanskrit's dhyana with a D-H-Y. It's also the Japanese word zen is actually a translation of dhyana or jhana. So we're talking about that. (laughs) And you may, because everybody knows what a jhana is, you may already be quite aware that there's, at least in the Buddhist tradition, four sort of stages or levels of jhana. And you could sort of go this way or this way with it. They're sort of, you know, spatially gets a little weird if they're, they're really deep or you're kind of really out there, right? I want to quickly talk about the traditional four dhyanas, but the talk tonight is actually about the formless dhyanas, or formless jhanas, of which there are, are four beyond the, the four, right? And so I was going to be talking about this fifth one, which is our first formless jhana, which is akasha, space, usually translated as infinite space. So I want to talk about infinite space tonight, but I need to back it up just to lay out sort of how I understand what these are, because I know that within the world of meditation and mindfulness, Jhana and dhyana meditation gets thrown around a lot, and a lot of different people have different takes on what it means to be in a dhyana, what it makes, what it means to be in the different dhyana. So I just want to clarify how I'm using these terms real quickly. And I thought a fun way to do that would be. Um, so it's very helpful to know that in Buddhism, the way they view the world is sort of in these three layers or these three dimensions, which would be called the realm of desire, the realm of form, and the formless realm. And the formless realm is where we're going tonight. It's where I wanted to get us tonight. Um, but to back it up where we're sort of all starting, which is in the realm of desire, the kamadatu, that's where we're at now. And just to explain what those are, if you, again, you might have heard these things, but you know, they're kind of maybe vague. I want to give you a kind of a tangible example so that you'll know exactly what we're talking about here. So has, has, I, I hope everybody's familiar with this optical illusion where it's an image. And if you look at it one way, it looks like two faces facing each other. But if you look at it a different way, it looks like two glasses or two wine glasses, right? Everybody, yeah, nod heads. Everybody's seen that one before, right? So it's a great example of all three datus. The, the karma datu, the rupa datu, and the a rupa datu, right there. And what I mean by that is, is that, so 
the Buddhist view is that our minds are sort of clouded or bogged down with this desire, this wanting for things in this world, wanting things to be a certain way, wanting things to stay a certain way, whatever it is. And so if you think of that wine glass, two faces, or the two wine glass, or it's, I guess it's one wine glass, two faces looking at each other, right? Imagine that someone, you know, they really like to drink, they really like wine, they re- you know, maybe they want to drink right now, you know? And so imagine that that desire, that, that those kleshas, as they would be called, the colorings of the mind, when, you, when that person sees that optical illusion, they'll be like, that's a glass of wine, because they're kind of seeing their desire. Whereas, let's say somebody's lonely, they're looking for a mate or a partner, they're going to see these beautiful two, you know, symmetrical faces looking each other, at each other, because that's what they need, that's what they want. Ooh, look at the two faces, right? So the basic idea for Buddhism is that we're walking around this whole world looking at what we want to see. Not kind of really what's there, but what we need, what we want, and then seeing it all around us. And then going around wanting it all the time. So the idea, of course, is that that optical illusion is, of course, neither a glass nor two faces. That is all up to the eye of the beholder. And so if you were to really transcend, if you will, the want and the desire of the mind, there is an entering into or a coming to the realm of form, the rupadhatu, just form, the shape. And it's kind of, you know, not exactly clear in a sense. Uh, it's not that one can't see the wine glass or the, the two faces, but it's that the, the, the raw form of these things is now clear, if you will. Right? The four traditional dhyanas, or jhanas as they're called, are called the, the jhanas of form. The idea being that we are normally in the realm of desire with our minds kind of whirling away with what we would like to see, what we would want, and all of that. But through the practice that we just did, through the calming meditation, the goal is to calm the mind down so that presented with that very same optical illusion, the mind would be so freed of desire and want that it would be able to just see the raw form of these things, the actual just shapes and curves of the lines without necessarily attributing to them any significance of wine, drinking, people, faces, what have you, right? following that very subtle shift, right? And the thing that I wanted to, the reason why I wanted to use this example is because I think some folks sometimes, when they hear about the realm of desire, realm of form, and then the formless realm, they kind of imagine things like, poof, turning into little puffs of smoke and like disappearing as, as these things, you know, change in our minds that reality would somehow all of a sudden start disappearing under us. And then when we reached this elusive formless realm, we would just be floating in space, right? Consider that optical illusion and the idea that if you were to really calm your mind down and really get rid of the desire, you would be able to just see the form of it. It it hasn't changed at all. It will not have changed. This will have changed. The mind will have changed what it sees, right? Yeah. 
also heard the framing that as humans were meaning making machines, we create stories to kind of make sense. Sure. Of, of things. Yeah. Do they make a distinction between desire as the vehicle of uh, interpretation and just kind of meaning making independent of desire, or are they always interlaced? So this, yeah, you know the. It's, that's a tricky question because this word desire and wanting is sort of, I don't want to say it's misconstrued or misused, but in Buddhism, it's, a, it's not as egregious as it might sound. The, the wanting or the desiring is actually much more subtle than that, to the point where even your meaning making is a form of it, if that makes sense, the sort of wanting things to, to be a certain way. And, and I say that with a light hand, meaning, you know, d- desire in Buddhism is not bad per se. It's just what's going on. It's kind of what we're up against, or if you will, but to vilify it in that way. And so meaning making is awesome. I don't want to vilify meaning making by my answer. That makes sense. But it is still sort of a, still a, 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 a root thing that's going on, though as a certain projection or a certain, yeah, kind of a projection of the state of the mind onto that which one is seeing versus an ability to just see it as it kind of, quote, really is. All right, now that's going to get a little tricky, the as it really is business, so don't, you know, hold on on that. But I just wanted, again, to reinforce this idea that the layers that we're talking about here, the, the shift between the realm of desire and the realm of form, it's a very subtle one. And again, it doesn't happen like magic, like that all of a sudden. It's a very slow process of getting sort of rid of, or at least you know, patting down these desires to the point where one can actually just see the form and the shape of these things, right? So just quickly, because not everybody talks about this, these four levels of the the rupa dhyanas, the, the, the dhyanas of form, when you have gotten rid of the desirous mind and you're just seeing form, or if your eyes are closed, you're just experiencing form. And I stress that form is not just a visual phenomena. Uh, we speak of wave formations because waves coming in through the ear is a form. The reason why we know it's an ambulance is because that sound wave has that form. And therefore, when we hear the wee, I guess if we're in, in Europe, if we hear, the, <laughs> if we hear the, the siren, it has a form that then our minds, the kamadatu mind, will attribute all kinds of significance and meaning to that sound. But if one is in a nice dionic state, in the realm of just form, one would hear the sound, but it would just be the sound, free of the meaning of it, significance of it, all of that, right? So again, in this realm of form, in a dhyana of form, there is these four levels. They don't have names. A lot of people want them to have names because a lot of things in Buddhism have names. It's not really names to these things, but they're sort of descriptors. And the main descriptor of the first level of dhyana, when one has actually broken out of the desirous mind, like really, truly, and one has entered into just a realm of pure form, that is said to be marked by great joy, rapture, ecstasy, real, real pleasure. Joy is sort of usually the word that's used. And a discursive mind, which means the mind is aware that it is in a dhyana. The mind is aware, oh, there's a sound going by, 
but I'm not attributing it such and such meaning to it. So the mind is discursively aware of what's happening, but it's in a very, very relaxed state. So, so, rela so relaxed that, the, that it's usually described as joyful. Um, in my experience, a, a good first level jhana is marked by a feeling of not wanting to be anywhere else. <laughs> and that when the bell rings, you're like, I'm good. <laughs> that to me is sort of a mark of a jhana, where you are finally for once just, you're good, content, happy being where you are. And you don't have the need to go check your email, the need to do this, the need or want or the desire to do X, Y, or Z. Because you're in dhyana. Kamadhatu is gone. You're, you're just like, whoa, look at all the form. Or hearing form or what have you. All right, so first level dhyana is this joy with the discursive mind. The second level of that is said to be slightly less joyful, more content, just sort of nice, and still with the discursive mind. The third level of jhana is said to be also content-filled, but without a discursive mind. So there is just the experience of contentment without a discursive mind thinking, wow, this is really pleasant, like it was doing in the first two jhanas. So the idea is in the first two levels of this, there's still somebody, some, like a mind that's still like, whoa, this is not like before. This is not like an hour ago. This is something new. But again, in that third level, that discursive mind ceases, and there is just said to be the experience of the contentment. And then this fourth jhana is rather mysterious. It's called, it does have a name, or at least it's described as upeksha in the Sanskrit, upeka in the Pali tradition. And that means equanimity, total stillness. And I want to back this up to my meditation a moment ago. The idea of dhyana, and this word dhyana, the root of it, di, means to see, all right? And dhyana actually sort of implies or kind of riding the wave of seeing. That's a dhyana, right? Dhyana. And the idea of that, and the reason why I introduced it as I did, come, please come on in. The reason why I introduced it as I did, which is this idea of placing one's attention or placing one's awareness on, and I mentioned you could use a candle flame, you could use a sound, the Buddha listed, I believe, 40 objects that were okay to put one's mind on, uh, discs of various colors, the four great elements, earth, fire, water, and air. Um, again, there's a list of 40 things that kind of will... will are conducive to dhyana, it's said. The top of the list is the breath. That's just sort of nice because it's like, it's, you know, travel packed. It, it, we always have it, right? It's easy. I don't always have a candle. So the idea of, the reason why I introduced it as placing one's attention on the breath, and I also said that you could place your attention on the candle flame, this idea of, of the putting one's attention on something. In Buddhism, this is called an ayatana. An ayatana is a base. And the idea is, is that you rest your uh, attention. It's called a, also a, a foundation of mindfulness to do this, to put your attention here. And the idea being that if you put your attention on one of these 40 objects, 
there can become or the result of the, the focus on it is emerging with that object. And in a sense, that unity or that oneness is the fourth dhyana, where you and what was the object sort of become a, a, a one in a way, no distinguishing the two. You are gone in, in the fourth dhyana, in Upeksha. The idea is really hard to describe. You're really getting into a state of almost non-duality, although I'm about to walk us through the, the actual roadmap to non-duality. But the idea is that these dhyanas are this union with that object. So that if you had your attention on the candle flame, there would become a moment where almost you had the experience of being the candle flame. This sort of, you know, where the subject-object relationship collapses. That's this fourth jhana. And that is the gateway to these deeper or higher levels of jhana. Okay? Everybody go to these lower levels. Everybody... And again, I, I leave it up to everybody to determine whether they've even made it to jhana, whether they made it to the second jhana. These are all very deeply personal experiences, and and so I don't, you know, I don't know what they, where they are. Do you mind going through the four again very quickly? Not at all. Just these four deepening, again, deepening levels of meditation, where really what you can imagine is that there is a, a slow process of, of merging with this ayatana, merging with this foundation of mindfulness. And so if, you've, if you're using your breath, when you start, of course, the, the mind's going wild, and it's very aware of the breath, visualizing whatever it's doing. But when one enters into a deep kind of dhyanic relationship with the breath, one enters the first jhana, which is a state of great joy and a discursive mind. So a, a mind that is aware that it is in some new situation, some new state of being, and is very excited about that. The second dhyanic level is a kind of lessened joy to, the, to a point where they kind of talk about contentment and also a discursive mind. So the joy has diminished to a, just a nice contentment, and you are aware of it. They speak of there being a radical difference, actually, between the second jhana and the third jhana, because the third jhana is no discursive mind, but content. The fourth ha is, in a way, indescribable, because contentment would speak of a person who was content, and to really arrive at this upeksha, as they call it, equanimity, it gets tricky to speak of an emotion involved. It's just an experience, right? Yeah. Out of curiosity, so the instruction around the different stages of jhana, how you describe that, I mean, there could be, even in different meditation, there are different approaches of um, experiencing non-dualism, which is A, you know, um, I observe the breath, and I become one with the breath. So there's still a very strong sense of duality, right? The second is, um, could be... Um, there's only there's only breath, yeah, which is a very different approach to I become the breath or the breath and I emerge. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering, um, because there are different meditations, we all know different approaches in regards of dhyana. Are there specific um, instructions on really practicing dhyana? 
Um, yeah, absolutely. It is the practice of sati, or in Sanskrit it's called smrti, which is this mindful awareness. And it's one of these things that it's like as simple as it seems. <laughs> it's like, it's so simple. It's actually just keep, like rather than the mind being like, whoa, what was that? Ooh, hello, hello. It's just keeping it somewhere. And, what, and if you start this practice, you know, you quickly begin to realize how out of control your mind is in a way, or like how little control you have over it, or you're at the mercy of it in a way that it's, it's going to go thinking about what it's going to go thinking about, and you're going to kind of go along for the ride. But, you know, a lot of Buddhist traditions, they call this uh, mind training, and it is mind training, because again, the, the, the tendencies of the mind would be to wander. But they also call it a practice for a reason, because the idea is if you keep coming back to this space, keep coming back to this mindful awareness, and just just sitting on the object. Uh, the example I like is the one of the, the disturbed body of water, the disturbed glass of water. The only way to get it to calm down is wait. You can't stir it the other way. You can't shake it into submission. Really, the only thing you can do is wait. And so I look at the, this meditation practice as that. This sitting here is just the waiting and letting it calm down naturally. And the, uh, the beauty of it is that it will. And you don't have to do anything. In fact, the problem is you're doing something, usually. <laughs> I'm curious. Um, I've heard of Dhyana in the Eight Limbs of Yoga mm-hmm. relative to merging with the object. But I know... Is it also just and like Patanjali would describe it that way? But is it also described that way in the in the Pali Suttas as merging with the object, or is that something that's specific to non-dualism that may or may not be so explicit? Do you know? Yeah, they don't speak of it in that language, but they certainly describe it in the sense of what the the. Yeah, in the sense of what the transcendence feels like to be left with just the breath in a way, okay. if that makes sense. Yeah. But I think we, or me as a Dharma teacher, try to employ some modern language like that to get a point across. But it's a good question, though. Yes, sir. I remember perhaps uh, her and right, uh, because, yeah, there are many systems and many type of practices that we can follow to go into this yana. But regardless of practice, I seem to remember that there are actually objective marks of achievement of these states. I remember uh, time, for instance. I, if I remember correctly, in the first yana of the form realm, uh, your meditative absorption or your attention on whatever your object of focus is, it should be uh, around 20 minutes, if mm. I remember correctly. And by the end of the fourth yana, technically what marks, that's what I remember, what marks your passage from the fourth yana of the form realm to the first yana of the formless realm? It is to stay in that samadhi uh, for 24 hours, at least. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, I, I don't remember the numbers, but I kind of remember the 24 hours of the last form yana. <laughs> yeah. So can you? Um, am I? I mean, I know what you're talking about, but I also am sort of more here to tell you that. There's a lot of different schools of Buddhism, and some get very exact about their, mm-hmm. their time on these things, and others are uh, much more not like that. And, and what I mean by that is, is that this, this tradition, this practice of dhyana meditation has, has gone so far 
that it is, again, I, I mentioned this at the beginning, the word Zen is the Japanese word for dhyana. So when they're talking about Zen and the art of archery, they're talking about dhyana and the art of archery, right? Uh, and at no point in the dhyana and the art of archery do they talk about how long you're in. They're, they're talking about a state of being that's one with the bow and the arrow and the target and all these things, which is very dhyana. It's very dhyana, but it's a very Japanese uh, Zen approach to it. And so, again, my point is, is that within, especially some more Theravadan tr traditions, they will get, they'll tell you exactly when you're in these dhyanas. And I know that there's that tradition, but it's one among many, if, if that makes sense. And I think really the one thing that I would like to convey is that these things are not well-defined. They may be well-defined within a particular tradition, but to really take some step back and be like, What's a, what is dhyana? Time out. What's dhyana? What separates these four states? But I think maybe we have a sense of what we're talking about, right? A kind of a general family or a, a zone or, again, a direction. Because I, I want to spend the next half hour talking about this idea of, of space, akasha, which is the, the ayatana, the foundation of this first formless dhyana or jhana. Also sometimes called a samadhi. You introduced this word samadhi, right? Samadhi, samadhi. The end of that word, d, is the same d for dhyana, to see. And samadhi actually is this idea of seeing the same. Sama means the same and d means to see. And so there's a sense of that union with the object, a oneness with it. So samadhis are very much about this unified experience with, and then it, in this tradition, it's a unified experience with the divine. That's what might make the Ashtanga system the Ashtanga system, as you have this idea of Ishvara, this idea of the Mahishvara, and this union with the divine. That's samadhi, a union. But in Buddhism, this union isn't necessarily with a higher being in that sense. It's either one with one's breath or what have you. And so what I want to get across tonight is that these samadhis or formless jhanas, space, which is the first, consciousness, nothingness, and then neither perception nor non-perception. All right, we're going to, later this month, the end of this month, this will have to do with samya. If you know your skandhas, this is about samya, and it's actually a state of neither with or without samya, which is a crazy idea. Below that, the one before that is, is akibkanya. Akibkanya means it's nothingness, nothing to want there, actually. It's like there's nothing, but it's an interesting idea of nothingness. And then before that is just vijnana, vijnana, consciousness. And then before that, the first one that we're talking about tonight is space, akasha. Now, here's the thing. I've heard these taught to where these are sort of like um, uh, this sort of roller coaster breakthrough of reality. And the way it goes is... Everything disappears into infinite space, and then everything disappears into infinite consciousness, and then everything disappears into infinite nothingness, and then bam, you're in this kind of non-dualistic state of neither perception nor non-perception, 
And this is kind of, in some traditions, the summum bonum of meditation to reach this state. What I'm kind of here to tell you, though, is that these ayatanas, as they're called, the akasha ayatana, this first level, what they're talking about is actually sort of a practice of moving one's focused attention away from either the candle flame or the breath, one of those 40, and actually in a dhyanic state, obviously that fourth upeksha equanimity dhyanic state, one moves that focused attention to the concept of akasha, space. And I want to talk uh, about this so that you, if you're there, if you're at these levels and you're curious, like, what, what, what do I do now? What do I do now? Well, you would move your attention, your focus to this idea of space, right? And so again, what, what the slight change that I'm doing here is saying that it's not that when you've meditated hard enough, you will make a breakthrough into the realm of space. What I'm saying is actually, no, you actually use the concept of space as a foundation for your meditation to move you sort of further along on this process, all right? And now space is, is interesting. So the words akasha, and the, of course we have a few problems. I think first, because of the, the predominance of science fiction, when a lot of people hear space, they're out. They're outer space. And outer space, or the concept of outer space, is sort of a Star Trekian notion. <laughs> and so, you know, the idea of like once your meditation has gone through these four dhyanas, the idea that you're sort of like an astronaut floating in infinite space, like it's void and you've got your little meditation suit on, it's not really what they're, or at least it's not what I think that they're talking about. The idea of space in the Buddhist tradition is, it's complicated. It's very complicated. It's a very complicated philosophical idea, as is it in the, in the West. It's equivalent to the concept of the ether in the West, which is this idea of a, well, to speak of it quickly philosophically, and this is true both in the Buddhist slash Hindu tradition and the Greek, Rome, whatever, Western tradition, that space is this really weird concept for space, like that, that allows for things to happen, to be in. And what they talk about in Buddhism is space is sort of like the space between things. And so what allows sort of this to be here is that there is a space for it. There's a space for it, right? But what they talk about, about like, if you think of like this, this space here, right? That allows this to be a bowl, allows it to function as a bowl. But I can't, pour the space out it's kind of like stuck in there right that's a joke but the idea is to 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 think of space as something is you're kind of going down the wrong road space is sort of this well i like to think of it as an allowance 
an allowance. It's, it allows for things to exist, but it itself, it, it ain't, it isn't. It's not, it should not even be conceived of as having qualities or being anything like that. But it is a sort of a dimension of reality that allows for things. And it's actually this idea of allowance that the Buddhists are sort of very interested in. In, in, in particular, the infinitude of allowance, if that makes sense, right? This sort of infinite possibility that lies within the concept of space. And in Buddhism, they go wild with this. There's a, a bodhisattva named Akasha Garba, space womb. And they speak of this womb of space out of which reality, like fountains out of this idea of space. So one way to think of it, so there I've just thrown a few different ideas out, this idea of that space is sort of, it's, you know, actually if you think about my original example of the two faces, right, and so if we want to really take this all the way, so we started with the realm of desire that sees what it wants to see, then we moved into the realm of form that can still see the shape, if you think about the space, space is what is allowing that phenomena to happen, right? Because if those lines collapsed and there was no space between them, there would be no room for the allowance of your mind to, to create a wine glass, to create the two faces. And going back to your question about the meaning making, again, Buddhism is like, it's wild that these minds are meaning makers. But... It, it just wants us to be aware of what's going on and not to be tricked by the meanings we make, right? Because we put these things out there, forget we made them up, and then we go chasing after them. So, yes? Space is not defined like it's non-local, and it's not a vacuum. It is not a va vacuum, right? yeah. Vacuum. So it's more understood like the ultimate reality? It gets very tricky. And, I, and in... Um, Obviously, in two weeks, we're going to talk about nothingness, which is different than space, like totally different than space. And then pretty much the last day, we're going to be talking about shunyata or emptiness. And that's totally different than nothingness, which is totally different than space. So in Buddhism, we have these... Yeah. Say again. It allows for them. It allows for them. Would uh, like precondition be a, a word for it? A precondition for form? For... Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I mean, well, I, 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 I'll hold on. Hold on, because I'm going to hopefully get us to a place where we're like, oh, that, I got it. But yes. Um, I, I thought I'd offer this up. Please. I did an art project on space one time, and the way I tried to describe it was that it was something that could only be defined by things that are outside of it, not space. Yeah. And what you're saying, the Buddhist way, is to kind of look at it in the opposite direction. That's really beautiful. Yes. Oh, cool. Okay. Yes. I love that. Yeah, and it's a toggle of the mind in that yeah. way. To like, yeah. yeah. There was another... Yeah. I was curious, the... Uh, historical context of these concepts? Was, was this coming from the Buddha himself? And like, what was the context these teachings came through? Great question. So I didn't mention it, but you should know somebody mentioned the Ashtanga. So Ashtanga Yoga is based on this process of uh, what, Pratyahara, Dharana, Dhyana, and then Samadhi. 
So they're, every, everybody in India, if you're meditating, they were interested in dhyanas and samadhis. And in even the four dhyanas, as I described them, are pretty standard par for the course meditation stuff that the Buddhists are like, yeah, that's, duh, that's how you do it. That's how it goes. <laughs> but these four formless realms do seem to be sort of unique to Buddhism and kind of what make the Buddhist practice the Buddhist practice. And I do, over the next four weeks, want to sort of articulate that uniqueness. Because there's another practice that a lot of people relate to these, which is the four immeasurables and the, or the Brahma Viharas. And these are these four levels that sort of quasi seem to correspond to these, but are quite different. And the, the Brahma Viharas or these, the, the, that practice also predates the Buddha. They, those were around. Buddha's like, yeah, great. That's a, the metta, karuna, mudita. Like, those are great practices. But this is the supreme practice. And this practice is sort of a deep dive into that, um, into the cracks, into the space, which is, again, why this, this process begins with the meditation on what is called infinite space. But it's not infinite space. The word's akasha. And because in English we do have outer space and all these things, they usually translate akasha as infinite space because it is this kind of um, vast um, well I wanted to, to plant this seed of Akasha as vast open awareness like this openness this expansiveness it's really what they want are talking about because all of this non-space stuff is rather cramped <laughs> if you know if you feel me and so the idea is, is that the freeing of the mind of attachment to all of this stuff, entering into the realm of form, and then even going beyond the realm of form to this first formless realm. So that's why we're talking about Akasha or space as a formless realm. Because, yeah, space has no form. It has no shape, color, size. If you're, if you're a technician here, it has very few lakshana but it does have lakshana, it has qualities, it has a certain quality, and that's why it's not emptiness and it's not nothingness. It's, it's still, it's not a thing, but it is this vast openness. Um, I probably should just mention, just because I'm not going to talk about Akasha forever, um, there's a lot that goes on with Akasha. Um, in particular, there's this idea of the Akashic Records. Anybody heard of the Akashic Records? So this is just, this is not Buddhist, but I just want you to see how this stuff sort of plays out. There is a notion that sort of all, like records of all phenomena are sort of hidden in Akasha, if you will. And that there is what is called these Akashic records that sort of like through meditations like this, one can sort of gain access to this repository Kept, that's kept hidden in this Akashic realm. Buddhists are not talking about that at all. They're much more <laughs> interested in this vast open awareness. It's much more philosophical in Buddhism where it's like, you know, the, 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 the Tao Te Ching, which is this Chinese po Taoist poem, has this beautiful line about uh, it takes clay, or in this case, bronze and fire, to make a bowl, but it's the, the emptiness that makes it useful, Right? It's the nothingness here. And the, the second part of that line is that it takes a 
like basically wood and nails to make a door frame, but it's the, it's the nothingness that allows the door to work. So it kind of gets kind of weird, right, if you think about a doorway, because isn't there a doorway right here? Because last time I checked, that, there's a doorway over there, and it's just empty space too. So isn't there one right here, and one right here, and one right here? I'm getting a little funny, but I mean to, because this is the kind of thinking where it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Space. Huh. And, okay, so this is, this is the sort of the getting to the last point I want to make about space in, as it pertains to Buddhism. So that idea of either the, the glasses and the faces or the idea of a doorway, right? So, again, the doorway, the functionality of the doorway is the the space. But what makes that space is the form, right? Because otherwise, all of a sudden, there's doorways everywhere. And as, as true as that might be, don't fall into the formless realm. Come back. The idea is, is that before we fall into the formless realm, we recognize that Space is sort of dependent upon, interdependent upon, form. So there is this weird relationship between form and emptiness, if you will, or just form and space, where they're sort of like bound up in this really magical relationship with each other. And it's actually that that I speak of the allowance. And that sort of is where it is. Everything's coming from space, but it's that uh, space is what allows it. It's not a, like a metaphysical tinkerer that's making everything in that way. It's just this sort of dimension that allows for it. The real maker of it, if you want to, I mean, you just want to get to it. The real maker of it is the mind. And so what is it that the mind like riffs on is space. Again, think of my example of the optical illusion. The mind is able to say, oh, I see a glass. No, I see two faces. It's able to do that because of the space. So it's kind of like space is this magical palette, right? Or a magical canvas, right? Where like anything can happen because the mind will, as a painter, will use the brushes of, of space in a way to make it, right? That, by the way, I see we're moving on here, but that is the idea of what the focus of the meditation on infinite space is when the, the mind or when the mind's consciousness or what have you is placed on this idea I just laid out. <laughs> this idea of space. And again, not outer space, not black void, but this allowance, this weird thing about space. And what ultimately happens in this process, and I'm going to remind us of this each week, is that we're sort of, in Buddhism, eventually trying to sort of maintain that view of space all the time. Like, even in the front of that which appears to be not space. Right, So that's sort of the, the idea of Buddhist practice is always not to go to these deep states, but to actually sort of bring those states to the waking state. 
that's in my opinion actually what makes Buddhism Buddhism as a meditation tradition is they're actually trying to that they're saying oh yeah you can not only have these deep meditative states eyes closed in deep consciousness you can have them with your eyes open having a conversation that's possible before Buddhism most people didn't think that was possible they thought you had to be locked in the formless you know the the immovable posture akshobhya and you had to be out you that was it and the Buddha supposedly found a way to bring that way of being back walking around as crazy as that might sound. Are there any um, qualities that describe, like official qualities that, that describe space? <laughs> you know, there's not. And just while we're on it, and again, because I'm not going to be talking about Akasha all the time, there are some Buddhist schools, not all of them, but there are some Buddhist schools that put Akasha or space alongside Nirvana as an unconditioned Dharma. So if, you're, if, if you understood what I just said, I'd say, whoa, that's interesting. Not all schools, most Buddhist schools actually reserve nirvana, this exalted state of liberation from suffering. That nirvana is the only thing that's unconditioned. The only thing that could be con like, mm, yeah, it's the only thing that we could be spoken about as unconditioned. Not of this world, not of desire, not of form, not even of formlessness actually completely other other buddhist schools are like you know space is kind of like nirvana and so and they're like you know what it doesn't really have any qualities any lakshana like nirvana maybe it's an unconditioned dharma too but you just said it means that under these traditions that consider these form and formless realms essentially samsara bound still oh absolutely absolutely but i didn't know that there are Buddhist traditions then that said that they're also liberation, that they're like not binded to samsara. Well, hold on. <laughs> there's a few things going on here. One is, is there's this initial, call it Theravadan, what, Hinayana, whatever. There's this initial movement of, of the initial Buddhist thing from the, from the guy himself. And what he seems to have been responding to was... A movement, a general yoga movement that was prescribing this dharana, dhyana, samadhi process in order to achieve this state of liberation or moksha, which was more or less um, the fourth the formless samadhi. Like, neither perception nor non perception, no suffering, we're good. But for, for everybody else, this is what you look like. You're not suffering, but man, you're in neither perception nor non-perception land. You're good. And so that was the way Buddha supposedly found a plateau beyond the state of neither perception nor non-perception. And basically said, ha ha, everybody that's in the state of neither perception nor non-perception, you're still in samsara. When the world collapses, you too are going to get sucked back into the churning and get reborn eventually. But the yogins actually thought that if they reached this state, the fourth state, they were free of getting sucked back into the cycle. Buddha supposedly said, no, 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 wait long enough, you'll get sucked back in. But there is this state of nirvana, which is a state of freedom, 
liberation from suffering, from desire, here and now. Not like this with the head in the clouds, but actually right here, right now, free of it. That's nirvana. Yeah? Mm-hmm. That's, that was my understanding, that all Buddhist schools will say that. Okay. Because that was like the differentiation between Buddhism and Hinduism. Okay, we're on the same page then. Okay. Yeah? Yeah. No. Um, it seems like getting back to Akasha. Yes. <laughs> it seems like um, for us, for me, Getting some grip on Akasha, the way you explained it, requires going sort of from the formless realm to Akasha. Like, Akasha gives is is the space of possibility within which form can arise. But I have I'm coming from the form realm. Okay, maybe when I was born, I had Akasha. <laughs> But right now I'm in the, in the realm of form, and so I'm, I can maybe start to understand and then maybe meditate on Akasha. But the goal is to see Akasha as the, I don't know if goal is the right word, but the, the, the state from which form arises, not the other way around. Do you see what I'm saying? That I could go. Yeah, and I would. If I understand you correctly, I, I would suggest what we're talking about is this, this movement from the realm of desire, the waking state of suffering, meditating on whatever, one of the 40 foundations, going into the dhyanas to one is in this equal state of equilibrium, right? And so we've already established or tried to lay out that in that state, to speak of a meditator, an experiencer, is, gets a little problematic. There is just this experience being had. Call it an exper- a oneness experience, right? And so the idea of this exercise of the, of the first formless jhana is to basically, like, I, it gets tricky, but if we were using our breath as that foundation to shift that foundation to space, but again, there's a oneness already in our upeksha. And so we're just the experience of oneness rather than it being sort of a, a oneness of being. It's a oneness of vast open space. Like that's it. And, and yeah, so I do understand where people are all of a sudden an astronaut out in space. But it's, that's too visual. That's still to you. What we're talking about is this deep, vast feeling of of allowance. Like I've been trying to emphasize of, of, to, to give you a feeling for what is space. So that you're not an astronaut in black void, because that's depressing. That's weird, actually, in my opinion, to be in black void. That's not because I don't think it's what they're talking about. I actually think they're talking about this much more uh, kind of magical realm of infinite possibility. That is, again, when I described the, the the realm of desire here as being like cramped, just feeling like all it's like I want to take my clothes. It's like you start to feel kind of cramped by all this stuff. And so imagine a feeling of vast open awareness, a kind of a freeing feeling. That's the idea of this Akashic meditation. So yeah, not on it as a, as a idea because you're in it. So the experience is one of vast open awareness. Yep. Is it meant to be a linear progression or, or can you make space I'll tell you, I don't know, but I went through it for you guys. I went through it all. 
every single reference to infinite space in the whole canon, and you can't find it not listed as part of this process that I'm going to walk us through this month. It's always this process. And that's kind of for a reason because, you know, this place that Buddhism wants to get us to, um, in particular in terms of the meditation, that is actually just past the state of neither perception nor non-perception, it, it's sort of a, um, a divestment, if you will, or a, a letting go process. And so to arrive at space is like, that's a good kind of starting space for these next few processes, which then will result in this, you know, chetto samadhi, anamita chetto samadhi, a signless samadhi. But, yeah. Is that also called cessation sometimes? Which? Nirodha is usually the ninth, is the top. This I'll get into this because uh, we're almost out of time now, but yeah, there's also differing opinions on, because sometimes there are eight, and sometimes there are nine, and sometimes there's eight, and then the ninth stage is Nirodha, cessation of all of that. We'll go through all of that, but Thanks. yeah. Your last question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like one more, one more. No, yeah, because we left joy a long time ago in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, joy was really this experience of the self having mm-hmm. kind of shed a lot of suffering that we're used to and kind of being like, oh, wow, you mean I don't have to always feel like that <laughs> kind of a thing? Yeah, and when we're in these upper levels, these are really, really profoundly deep states of being, like <laughs> being, just being. You know, that again, as soon as you're in this fourth level of dhyana and then in these formless ones, we're talking formless. There's no form. There's nothing recognizable in the sense of, of, lakshanically speaking, meaning there's nothing to see here, folks. There's nothing to hear here anymore. Nothing to see, feel, taste, even really nothing to think about, although we're not quite there yet. That's more or less, you know, spoiler alert, that's where this goes. Why we have to get to a stage of nothingness is because that even there's even something going on that needs to be let go of. So we're we're so subtle here that it. I think the joy would only be upon coming back into the body and being like, wow, wow. But yeah, but while you're in it, yeah, I think it's it's a pretty deep state of just being. Yes, sir. Mainstream physics uh, right now considers space-time as being derived from matter, not matter being in space, but more like space as a result of matter existing. Mm-hmm. And so space can be seen as like what are the possibilities and what are the forms uh, matter can take. So I think that might maybe help to get closer to this. Yeah, th- and on that note, I want I meant I mentioned it briefly. I meant to come back to it. This idea of the the ether. Right. So in the West, we have this idea, this problem actually still with light, whether it's a wave or a particle, 
If it's a particle, it's a photon, and that has its problems. But if it's a wave, a wave of what? Right? Because the whole idea of like a wave, a water wave is a wave of water. But if light is a wave, the question is, what is it a wave of? And the idea is, well, it's a wave of ether. And actually, that very same like mm, conclusion, I guess, or that foundation of, of thinking, it's the same with Akasha. Akasha was the ether, which is the 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 baseline that light phenomena is the wave of. And then I think maybe Noam mentioned it uh, jokingly, but the Akasha or that ethereal realm, realm is also where basically when beings die in Buddhism, but their consciousness kind of continues, it's because it's on that wave. And it's that Akashic realm that sort of is what the Gandharavas, it's called, rides. So it's, again, yeah, it is this sort of, I, there's a way in which in Buddhism they're so non-materialist. I mean, I'm thinking Yogacara mind only here, where so that they speak of it as a as a ether-like phenomena, but they kind of know that it's not real in that way. It's a kind of a logical necessity, if that makes sense. <laughs> Maybe the last question. Last question, last please. So, um, in uh, the, the material. Uh, jhanas, the experiences are really sensational, or this is from my experience, yeah, yeah, they please. tend to be very sensational, and there's a, um, I, I think, I appreciate the way you described it, you know, the semantics are difficult, right, but the um, uh, equanimity, and this, like, there's a certain, or the way I've experienced it is there's a certain solidity to it. It's very clear and it's um, still kind of graspable. And that uh, portal, <coughs> if you will, or it's almost about where it, there's a dissolution of that matter or that solidity or that kind of oneness that then turns into this kind of vastness. And what, um, I guess my question, though that's like a ramble, um, <laughs> if you didn't notice that. The question is really about how, I think it's, um, or I've been able to, if you will, describe the material jhanas with sensations. Sensations of joy, calmness, contentment, tranquility, equanimity yep. is something that they're, that's a hard one to put a sensation on, but that like solidity and that there's a uh, equality of um, the density of this, the density of that, the density of this, and it becomes kind of one thing as opposed to it all being categorized in terms of molecular you know, makeup. Mm -hmm. And that then allows this kind of breakdown or mm. fracture that then is uh, I don't know that's the, well there's a lot here but <laughs> scale because you haven't mentioned scale and you haven't mentioned time and both of those things to me really relate to space and mm. those are the things that mm. dealing with my mind when it's kind of like is it vastness like 
outer space and lost in, I'm a lost in space generation guy. <laughs> lost in space, or is it like the space inside my body or under my fingernail <laughs> or in a molecule? Yeah. And that all dissolves also. <laughs> so those yep. perceptions of scale and space and time. <laughs> is that it? That's probably enough. I think that just that portal from matter and solidity and ground and hardness into this, like, yep, yep. uh, There's no words for it, really. Yep. So, yeah, that brought a lot to mind. I'll try to keep it all together. (laughs) So, the one thing I didn't want to tell you guys. ever because it's so wrong is this you know kind of like pop science idea about how you know there's like more space between the atoms so this is actually just empty space yeah that's not at all what they're talking about at all but i did want to plant that idea of that because it relates to what you were saying in terms of scale that if you were to shrink down you know uh, quantum level, the idea that you could start sliding in between these things because it's all space, right? That's sort of one thing to think about. But your relation, your uh, relating your experience made me think of. So there is this wonderful sutra that I taught once that was on emptiness. It was actually how to achieve a state of understanding of emptiness. It's a Pali sutta. It's called the the little Kula Shunyata Sutra, the little Sutra on Shunyata. And it's a pretty simple meditation. It reminds me a lot of what you just described. How interesting, right? Language, it's weird. How interesting that I might, you know, whether it's this or one of my favorites, this, right? That I, that I might call this one thing. Right? What an odd, what a, you know, it's not one thing. It is many, 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 many things. But the mind can easily, especially because it has this clock, one word, boom, it's one thing, right? Yeah, okay, mind, let's play that, says this sutra. Um, community, one thing. Right? Wow, we're all one. One word, one name. There's a way that mentally, like a clock, this can all be grouped as one. So there's this meditation where the the Buddha says to the monks, "Go go into the woods. And at first, one sees just forest. Forest. Oneness. Then, and I'm going to, it's a little late, so I got to speed it up. But the idea is you shift that uh, mindful awareness, that foundation of mindfulness from just forest, the one singular concept of forest, to what would be called the earth element. But I often, if if this is the first time with me, earth in, in Hinduism and Buddhism doesn't mean dirt, right? Earth, water, fire, and air. Earth is solidity. Water is liquidity. Fire is temperature. Everything has a temperature. 
right? And then wind or air is life, whether things are moving or not. Are, are, this is full of air, the air element. Look at how much life, yep, got a temperature. Look at how much fire element, water element, and lots of, or the earth element, and lots of water element, blood, all of that, right? So I am the four elements. So the four elements are solidity, liquidity, movement, and temperature, or something like that. Not dirt, H2O, fire, you know, like, it's helpful to know that they're not dumb and think there's only four elements. They think there's four states, which more or less we do too in that way. So the meditation is to move from forest to solidity, to the earth element, so that all becomes like this monolithic one that is form or matter. And then the next movement is essentially flipping up to vast open awareness to space. And this is the process of stripping down sort of this process of the mind, throwing things on reality, getting things back. And then this, what happens when we calm that down to a state of first equanimity, then that equanimity, equal, equal equanimous state, moving it to this first formless state and of space. Again, it's space. Allowance for the form. It's too late to do any more than that. I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So happy to do it. I'm here next week, and I'm also here on Sunday teaching a sutra that's going to have to do with these realms in some way. (laughs) Thank you, Michael.